planned. It's Tony Nash back with you again, the CEO of Booktopia. Very excited today. If you're feeling a little down or a bit flat, it's the pandemic right now, depending on what time you're listening to this recording. I have Penny Locasso with me, and she is a genius expert on happiness. And her new book, Hacking Happiness, <laughs> right? How to intentionally adapt and shape the future you want. Now, what perfect timing. You are like Nostradamus, Penny, to have come up with a book like <laughs> before a pandemic. I mean, how how sweet is that? Congrats, congrats on the new book. Thank you. It's been um it's been a very interesting journey because uh, I I basically went into monk mode back in November last year at the end of November, thinking, you know what, I'm going to take three and a half months. I'm going to write my first book. It, it all made sense and. Lo and behold, the day I finished the book, two days later, we went into lockdown for the first time um, here in Melbourne. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, how is this going to work in a pandemic? But as you say, um, the book didn't then get launched until September and it turned out by then the timing of sort of helping people be able to reset their foundations um, could not have been better. Mm. How how wonderful! So so were you, John Wiley is your publisher. Were you and John Wiley um, uh, kind of deliberating over whether should we or shouldn't we, or was it was it like no, we've got to do this. This is important information. We've got to get it out there. How did that all kind of unravel? It was really interesting because, like I say, as soon as we went to lockdown, I, I rung up uh, Wiley and just said, "What? how is this going to work? I mean, I was on a plane nearly every week travelling around the world um, speaking, and so I knew how important things like um, books in airports were because, that you know, every time I went to an airport, I would be in the bookshop looking at books. That's what I love doing. So I was like, that's gone. You know, no one's going to stores anymore. How are people going to, you know, um, buy books? And will they even want to buy books in the, you know, the reality of, of what life now is. But speaking to Wiley, they said it's really interesting because there were certain um, publications where they were like, now is just not the right time. Uh, but they said to me, based on the timing by September, um, that was in March, by September, it made a lot of sense um, because, and, and this is what's happened, yeah, people initially are in shock and they're just dealing with the immediacy of, of the significance of change. But now that we're sort of six months into this and we're trying to live in what I now term COVID life, um, looking at, as I say, if life has been or the foundations of life have been reset for us, reframing how you want to navigate that in a way that is meaningful and intentional and enables you to not operate in this space of survival but in a space of thriving, um, there couldn't be a better time for it. And so Wiley were very supportive of continuing to to launch the book. Mm. They didn't try and rush it through then to make it come out earlier? No, and I'm really glad that they didn't. Um, there was obviously some editing that needed to be done. So I was very lucky when I say I finished, I finished writing the first draft, but there was an editing phase that we needed to go through. And I was just so grateful that we hadn't finalised um, the editing process because it meant that I could start to weave in some of what was going on with COVID into the context of the framework that I use pe for people or that I gift to people to hack happiness. So we were lucky to have the time to actually edit in um, the relevance of COVID to to the concept of hacking happiness. Mm. So let's get now that you've mentioned it, and uh, obviously the title of your book. Without, I mean, 
I never like to give anything away. It's a, I want everyone to buy your book. Um, and it's, it's like, it's, you just know that I've had the chance of course, to open up and have a little look inside and you probably one of those things where you just kind of open up the book depending on the day and go, Oh, let me just read that page or two. That sounds really, you know, feels really right to me. Uh, um, intuitively I could, you don't necessarily need to make, you probably would want to make your way from the beginning to the end. Um, but still get a lot of insight by just opening up and having a look. So it, without giving anything away, tell us a little bit, bit about your um, starting off and going, mm, there's a void, there's a gap in the market here. There's, there's, there are books about happiness, of course, but um, you probably um, couldn't see it being demonstrated in the world or what, there wasn't enough evidence of in, in the world, so you got on a mission. Tell us about how you how you kind of found out about that within yourself and others and then why you why you really started to focus on happiness mm. so the journey um for me in terms of becoming what i call the world's first happiness hacker um pretty much uh started six years ago and so six years ago i was uh, an executive in a global giant at the absolute top of my game um i was over in perth amidst the oil and gas boom um, you know, it was it was a time of abundance, and uh, I was 39 years old, and I basically had ticked all the boxes that I would, was told would make me successful, and I'd been led to believe that if I ticked all these boxes and followed this path, I would arrive at happiness. That was kind of what I'd been sold, and I think that's what many of us are sold. And I had done it all and I was sitting there going, I feel unfulfilled. I've got everything I could possibly want at the age of 39 and I don't feel fulfilled. And so for the first time in my life, I asked myself, what does happiness look like on my terms? What does success look like on my terms? And when I did that, I realised that the things that made me happy were human connection, positively impacting the lives of others and being present and in a moment. And sadly my pursuit of success meant that those things were consistently being sidelined. And I was like, there's a disconnect here. Um, I am living my life out of alignment is probably the way that I would now term it. And so I was like, well, if this is what happiness looks like for me, the only way I'm going to get this feeling of fulfilment is to actually realign my life. So I did something really crazy and I turned my whole life upside down in pursuit of happiness. So within a seven-month period, I left a 16-year career as an executive at the top of my game. I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne. I left an 18-year relationship and started my own purpose-driven company with the sole intent of helping others define their happiness and then providing them with a compass via a methodology to actually be able to navigate the path towards that. And so that was kind of the beginning. And as I say, that was six years ago. And the reason I wrote the book was because um, this concept of helping people define happiness on their terms rather than, like you say, there's a lot of books out there. I'm not here to tell you what your happiness is. Your happiness is unique to you. And what makes me happy is going to be different to what makes you happy. But what I can give you is a framework and a set of experiments or hacks, as I call them, to help you navigate what you and help you frame happiness, not as an end state or a goal, which is what I think many of us have been led to believe, but as a way of being 
a practice. And the more that you show up in this practice in the everyday, the more likely you are to have more days that are happy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what when you did that transformational shift, which must have scared the living crap out of you and probably, <laughs> probably your family, and everyone said you're nuts, and now they're all going, oh, yeah, I get it now. Very smart, very clever, you know, good on you. We, um, because you really did um, have a huge um, shift in your in your paradigm and in your, your whole world. Uh, you took a completely different perspective, um, which is not easy to do. What were some of the first things that you noticed when you started to do that that made you feel that you're you're on the right path? Given that you 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 just threw everything out of threw everything out the window and said, "I'm going to go for it." You must have had. Well, there was probably no going forward, obviously. You probably had got to the end of your line and you said, I can't go in that direction one more step. So that would have been fairly kind of, um, a, you know, a large stop sign on, on that journey. But then to know that you've kind of jumped on another road and another highway and you go, yeah, I'm on track here. What, what were some of the kind of little anecdotal things that you saw within yourself? So the one of the, the early at the in the early days, the thing that made me think, even though I had no idea what it was going to look like, right? So when I launched into, I'm going to just basically positively impact the lives of others through my work. I'm going to help people explore happiness, and I don't know what that's going to look like. I certainly never imagined it was going to look like what it does now. Um, but one of the first things when I said to people, you know, I'm doing this, I'm turning things up to upside down, I'm leaving. Like you said, the amount of people that told me I was crazy, there was something in that. And, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but the more people said to me, why would you leave the safety and security of this huge salary and, and all of, you know, these material trappings, um, to, to pursue something that's unknown. And the more people said that there was something in my gut that said, this is right. Mm -hmm. And what I now realise looking back, and the irony is even just yesterday, is that those are the people that now reach out to me on a regular basis that I used to work with and say, what you've done is unbelievable. I wish I could do the same. Not as in be a happiness hacker, but I wish that I could realign my life. Mm -hmm. And you absolutely can. Anyone can. So that's the first thing. And what I realise now as well is that when you want to make significant change, right, that is extremely uncomfortable, that will transform your life, it makes other people feel very uncomfortable because often it impacts them or it highlights fears that they have. And there's a term called concern trolling where people act concerned, but the reality is what they're concerned about is more about what's going on inside them and less about what you're doing. And so that's that's probably the first thing I would I would sort of highlight being aware of that. Just because someone tells you you're crazy or you shouldn't, and all the reasons why you couldn't, isn't a reason why you shouldn't. Um, so that that was really insightful. The other thing is, um, people for some reason seem to think that um, I had this huge amount of self belief and that I never doubted myself. And I think that we all throughout our lives experience imposter syndrome, you know, that feeling that it's like, do I actually, should I actually be here? Do I, how did I arrive here? Do I actually deserve this? Can I actually do this? Am I capable? Do I have the skills? I had self doubt throughout the whole journey. Um, and I still do. I think that it's completely human to have self doubt. Um, 
But I got to the point where probably about a year in, I was waking up at about two o'clock in the morning and going, who the hell do I think I am to be able to do this? Um, and, and, you know, I had a crazy mission, which I'd set, which was to teach 10 million humans how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness by 2025. And I was like, what if I don't, what if I don't get there? What are people going to say? What, you know, so all of this self-doubt and it became so sort of, um, I'd say it became something that was sidetracking me. So I got to the point where I actually went and saw, um, uh, a neuro-linguistic programmer, so someone that does mindset reprogramming, which was completely out of the box for me, um, and I would never have done that back in my days as a professional, but that two hours with her helped me learn some very basic skills to not get rid of self-doubt because I don't think that's healthy, but to be able to turn it around quite quickly and use it in a way that was constructive rather than destructive. And I just want to say that because I think a lot of people say I struggle with this self-belief and they don't believe they'll ever have the the courage and the confidence to be able to make the change that they seek. But I think that you can build that muscle and you can get better off at it and knowing that it never goes away, but you can effectively use it um, is really helpful. Mm. I um, When you were saying that, it reminded me of when I started Booktopia back in 2004 on a $10 a day budget and people said to me then, what do you want to start a bookstore for? You know, there's Amazon, there's Borders, there's Dimmix, there's Angus and Robertson. You're too late. Now people say to me 16 years later, that's lucky you got in early. So there's always this dialogue going on in the background where, where people could easily um, uh, sway you into perhaps going, yeah, maybe you're right. I'll, I won't give that a go. And, and, uh, and if, you, if you trust your own intuition and really believe in yourself, then, then you can... Um, you set your own compass, you set your own horizon point. Um, it is interesting, as you were explaining, funnily enough, and um, I'm not trying to big note myself here or anything, but it just goes to show that if you do invest in yourself, um, how you can impact your own mindset. As you were saying, mm. talking about the self-doubt, um, in my mind I was going, well, hold on a second, uh, self-doubt, well, that just tells me the gap between where I'm at today and what I'm working out, what I need to, what I'm you know, need to work on. Um, but um, it also, funnily enough, I uh, did the training as a neuro, neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, NLP practitioner, huh? many yeah. years ago. I, I never practiced it as a practitioner. I just wanted to learn a number of those skills, which I actually mm. have, uh, funnily enough, kind of over the years used or cut. It's not that you, you use them, but they're kind of automatic where you just you just reframe your thinking and re reframe the way that you might, you might address things. So I, anyone who's listening, who's thinking about um, kind of working on themselves, then I would highly recommend that as well. Um, it, it, I did it in the mid to early nineties and I've benefited from it for a quarter of a century. So um, uh, ditto from me there. Um, yeah. Need- Reframing. Um, I mean, <laughs> as a happiness hack, I always say one of the most, um, well, the language you use will determine your ability to make change, you know, and and reprogramming or reframing things. So much of it is linked to um, whether you have or or how – how would you say whether you have positive or negative thoughts and the uh the percentage of those yeah so if you're if you're having a high percentage of negative thoughts the more negative you are to yourself or the more unkind you are to yourself it becomes a barrier 
Yeah, and so actually look, learning ways to reframe how you talk to yourself and equally the, the positivity and the negativity of language that you allow into your environment is one of the most powerful ways to shift your mindset because you can always look at everything in two ways. There's always a way to look at something positively and there's always a way to look at something negatively and being able to shift, not get, as again, I think it's very healthy to feel both but being able to take a negative and challenge it and say, well, what would it look like on the other side if it was positive? And doing that consistently over time is extremely, extremely helpful in enabling you to make significant change in your life. Mm, yeah, for me, that's um, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask of yourself and others. Mm. So, yeah. so if you're if you're in a situation where something's not working out, you go, "Why am I such an idiot?" or "Why does that always happen?" Rather than, "What could I do to make it get a different outcome?" Your brain engages in a very different way. So even yeah. internally, even though you, you might do it with people that you work with or your family or your friends, but um, you know, our, my neighbour um, um, was working in the garden on the weekend and he fell off the ledge that he was working on, rolled onto another ledge underneath, two metres under that, and then two metres underneath that, down onto the driveway, knocked his head, was unconscious, and uh, broke six ribs and was taken off mm-hmm. to hospital. Um, and we're all standing, I, I kind of was driving down the driveway, maybe three or four minutes later, five minutes later, I wasn't there when it happened, but a lady had driven past, and we were all standing around, not sure what to do. Then a, a husband and wife drive by, and he goes, I'm a doctor, can I help? The questions that he asked, because he's a doctor, were so much better than the ones we could ask. And so we all have these areas of expertise. It doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or a nurse or if you're a hacking a happy, happiness hacker or if you're a, a parent or if you're a child. The quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. In particular, when it comes to happiness, I think, from my experience, um, is the internal questions that you're asking because they can really serve you or disserve you. And, and mm. but just give us that's so it's really interesting because I, as you can tell probably by the way I, I like to do these little sessions, it's more about me. Um, I allow other people to, to hack into my, to my session with some expert. And today I have Henny Lacasso, the author of Hacking Happiness and an expert in turning your life around and making it one that you truly cherish, I guess is one way of describing it. Tell us then about some of the other little hacks without giving you know too much away. Some that when you if you if you meet someone you go, oh, have you ever thought about doing this? Or if anyone that's we're all listening today to you, what what do you reckon is one of the biggest kind of things you can provoke someone into getting making a shift? I think the very first place to start is not to wait like I did till the age of 39. Mind you, no age is a bad age to do this, but the first place to start is to sit down and define happiness on your terms. How would you define happiness if you were living it fully? Yeah, and so when I did that, like I said, it enabled me to reset the foundations or provide the basis to do that. So when I redefined happiness, I now say to people, for me, happiness is being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, knowing that you can come out the other side just a little better than what you were before, because you have the skills, the resources and the support structure to do that. Because the reality is 
You cannot be skipping down the street and painting rainbows every day. Being happy every minute of every day I don't think is possible, nor is it desirable. Yeah, because how can you be happy if you don't know what it feels like to not be happy? Okay. And the other thing is we know bad stuff's going to happen. I mean, hello, we're in a pandemic. You know, life is going to throw crazy things at you. Having the toolbox or the skill set to be able to navigate that in a way that's intentional is what's powerful. So define happiness on your terms. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing, I'll give you a couple that seem to really resonate. Um, We teach three foundational skills as part of the framework that I've developed to help people hack happiness. And so the first skill is how to focus in a uh, world that's now designed to distract you. The second skill that we teach is courage. So how to use fear and failure to shape the change that you want for yourself and in the world around you. And then the third skill is curiosity. How do you actually reframe yourself as a grown-up to go back to what you were like as a child and look at curiosity as a state of being, a way of showing up in the everyday, to your point, yeah, a way of asking more questions than making statements or having opinions. Um, And so if I look at hacks around those skill set, focus, I would challenge people. Everyone says to me, how do I find space for myself? How do I stop being distracted so that I can focus on the things that matter to me? I ask them to take the busy equals bullshit challenge. And so basically what I challenge people to do. So you just said the busy equals bullshit challenge. Thank you. Okay, keep going. That's correct. So I believe that the reason we are so distracted and that we struggle with focus is, well, twofold. It is that we, um, productivity has become our disease. We are so focused on being productive, especially professionals, yeah, that it comes at the compromise of thinking, of curiosity, of creativity. And so this need to be productive means that we feel that we need to feel every minute of every day. Yet the neuroscience shows that our brain does its best work in stillness. Brain, when boredom connects dots and it goes into what's called default network mode. And that is why you get your best ideas in the shower. Because the reality is in today's day and age, when we're so busy and equally we're using our devices to fill every spare minute that we have, that we don't have this, our brain doesn't have time to recharge. So we're not operating at our optimum. And so we've glorified busy. Yeah, busy has become uh, an on-trend state of mind. But what does busy really mean? And I actually say busy equals bullshit is because I've worked with thousands. What I find is busy is often code. It's code for I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, I'm distracted, um, I need to validate myself. So it's ego-based or I'm lonely and feeling isolated. Like, So if busy is really doesn't have that much meaning. I say park it. And so for one week, remove the word busy from your vocabulary and watch what happens. Watch what happens inside your head. Watch what happens in the conversations that you have. Yeah, and and just see. So I did this two years ago. I stopped using busy. So everything that I share as an experiment or a hack, I do myself because otherwise – who would I be? You know what I mean? Like there's no point in making recommendations if you're not willing to play with the stuff yourself. So when I did this two years ago, I swapped out busy and instead I decided to start using the word positively engaged. So when people asked me how I was, 
rather than say I'm busy, which is the default mode for so many of us, I would say I'm positively engaged. And it was immediate in terms of its impact. People would stop in their tracks and go, what do you mean? Like, what are you doing? Because they were, they were even before I'd said it and they'd asked me the question, they were expecting me to say, I'm busy. And the thing is, think about it, busy is not a conversation opener. It is a closer. So it disconnects us more than what we realise humanly. So they would ask me what I meant and I would say, my life is full but I'm doing things that I love. And then, you know, the, the look of shock on so many, because so many people don't enjoy what they do. That's the other thing that's, you know, so surprising. And then they go, well, no, what do you really mean? And I'm like, but that's the reality. So I would say to them, try not using busy for a week. Use positively engaged if it makes sense or use another word, but reframe busy from a negative to a positive and just observe what happens. And the other thing, using something like positively engaged meant that every time I said it, if I didn't feel positively engaged, it gave me an accountability tool to say to myself, well, if I'm not positively engaged, then why am I doing what I'm doing? And to your point, you know, ask myself a different question. Can I reshape this? Can I swap this out for something else? Do I have to do this? Um, so, yeah, I would just, that's the first thing I would say, just for one week, because busy perpetuates busy and no one wins a race on a hamster wheel. Yeah, and a busy mind, it's only a matter of time before a busy mind will go to anxiety. I've had a conversation with a psychologist and that was exactly what she said to me. So that's probably the first hack. And the other hack I would give that's really powerful as a start point, so many people don't live the life that they want because they're afraid, yeah, and they're afraid of change. So I say happiness lies at the intersection of what you've longed for yet what you've avoided. But wouldn't that... Now, if you're that, longing... Sorry to cut you off there, but, I mean, I, and I love that first hack, and just before we go on, I am going to give myself that challenge, and people can ask <laughs> me when they see me, how did you go with the busy with the busy challenge, the positively engaged? I'm not sure whether I can use those words, but um, I'll find out something, ac accomplishing heaps. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll come up with something that works for me. Um, but... Just with the um, the next one, then, um, in terms of they're afraid of of their um, of of happiness or of succeeding. Does that not though? If you start to curiously um, navigate your way down deep into what's going on there, is it not more uh, the values and beliefs that you kind of constructed when you were very young? And there's a part of you that says, if I accomplish that kind of success or if I get that then that means you're this and therefore you're you self-sabotage because you're you're um it, it would kind of break some of some belief that you have about yourself I think I'm perhaps coming at it from a different angle um so when I say um we're afraid generally what we are afraid of is uncertainty it's the unknown and to your point, so much of that links back to the values and the belief set that we have. So we have this clear kind of mindset of what's right and wrong. And then that feeds the decisions that we make. But one of the most powerful things that we can start to do is unlearn, is to challenge ourselves to consider what if I was wrong? Because we are operating in all of the decisions that we make off a sample size of one. 
Yeah, and from a research perspective, statistically, that's not sound. Our beliefs and our values are formed on our experience. And that's, as I say, the experience of one. And just because we believe it, it doesn't mean it's true. So questioning ourselves constantly to consider what if I am wrong about a long, powerful, again, in reframing our mindsets and how we approach problem solving or decisions that we make. But when I say we're afraid and I say happiness sits at the intersection of what you've longed for yet what you've avoided, when you long for something, it clearly has meaning to you because you've sat with it for an extended period of time, right? But there's a reason why you have not stepped into it. So ask yourself what that reason is. Why have you avoided it? And I'll guarantee you it's linked to some type of fear. Yeah, and so the main fears that people tell us, and again, I've done work with thousands in this particular space, it's fear of financial instability. So will I be able to still sustain myself financially or my family? Um, it's fear of what others will think, the judgment, what other people will say, which we've spoken about earlier today. Um, it's fear of failure. It may not work out. And if it doesn't, then what? And the challenge is that what happens with this fear is that it keeps so many people. People would rather stay in the misery of the known, right? So even though they know they're not happy and what they're doing is not making them happy, there's a comfort in the fact that they know it rather than step uncertainty of making a significant change that they've longed for because they don't know how it's going to play out. And so one of the most powerful skills to hack your happiness is a little practice I call um, that I've I found a long time ago called micro-bravery. And so what you want to do here is you want to build your courage. You want to build your confidence. You want to believe, build your self-belief, which we've spoken about. And the best way to do that is to do one small thing every day that scares you. And don't compare yourself to anyone else. Don't say, oh, that's not enough. That, that's not scary enough because, you know, John over here, he's got something scarier. What John's doing doesn't matter. If you just focus on doing one small thing every day that makes you feel uncomfortable, you will be astounded at how it builds your courage and confidence to lean into bigger fears over time, bigger uncertainties. Because what it starts to do is it starts to normalise uncertainty. And you realise that how how much you build things up in your mind in terms of fear and making yourself afraid, things are never really or rarely often as bad as what you can make them in your mind. And so micro-bravery might be as small as reaching out to a random stranger that you've um, obviously never met, that you've long admired from a career perspective and saying, could I have a coffee connect with you? It could be like I did at the start of um, COVID life, signing up for a drawing class when you've never drawn anything but a stick figure. Um, you know, it might be like I did three weeks ago. Um, I haven't ridden a horse for 20 years, even though I grew up on horses, and I've started horse riding again. All of these little things make me feel uncomfortable, but it's these small practices every day of micro-bravery that builds your resilience muscle and starts to reshape your mindset around uncertainty and fear. Mm, interesting. Wow. The, for those that haven't bought um, Penny's book, Hacking Happiness, right, 
you can tell that she's onto something, can't you? You're listening to this and you're going, <laughs> I want more of this. And I've got the book in my hand and I can tell you that when you talk about some of those things, about curiosity, courage, focus, you've actually developed a model um, that mm. kind of helps people uh, navigate their way in and understand how things kind of operate. So you've, you've, you've thought about this and you've gone into great detail. And I think anyone that uh, gets a copy and reads it, it there is definitely, um, there's going to be something or many things in here that you can apply to your life that is going to help things shift. And I think um, anyone who's not pursuing or desiring that um, is either lying to themselves or um, or dead. Um, because <laughs> because I think um, my dad's 85. Um, I I can assure you, that you said, oh, you were 39, I'm 57. Um, uh, you, you, you can't stop not wanting to have something work for you a little better or, or mm. um, give you greater joy and, and pleasure in, in the world. I, surely that's something that's a lifelong um, ambition. In fact, one of the books, best-selling books we have right now, The Happiest Man on Earth, um, Eddie Jacquery just turned 100 years old and he published his first book when he was 99. He was a former Holocaust survivor. And, oh, and, I love uh, that. Yeah, and so he's uh, and dad. My dad knows him, and uh, and he goes. He's a really happy guy, and having gone through the Holocaust and lost family and so forth, it takes a, a certain mindset. Um, mm. So what? When when you work, you obviously work with people, right? You're doing so. If anyone's listening now, they can probably look you up, and you consult for companies and people directly coaching. Is that what you do? Yeah. So. Um... <laughs> Hacking happiness takes a variety of forms. So I work with large corporations um, delivering talks but also running workshops around the methodology that I've developed, um, which is teaching – the methodology is called intentional adaptability. So basically I believe the foundation to happiness is learning to intentionally adapt, which means that it doesn't matter how complex or uncertain an environment is, you're always going to be able to navigate it in a way that's meaningful for you. So work with large corporations, um, work with a lot of um, big conference organisers, uh, now work with a community, so do a lot of online um, programs that we run for individuals. Um, we've got an amazing community over on Facebook called the Hacking Happiness Collective where we, where myself and other people um, share happiness hacks and we inspire each other to continue our practice. Um, yeah, so there's a number of different ways that people uh, can work or connect with myself. Mm. It's okay. interesting what you said earlier, Tony, though, about the book. So. The book's not designed as a book that you would pick up and read cover to cover within, say, three or four days. The book is designed as a, a tool. It's like, a, as I say, it's like a, a compass to help you navigate your hacking happiness journey and your practice, hone your practice. And so the reality is you're likely to pick it up and read a couple of pages and it's full of experiments. And then you will take what you've, you've learned and experiment with it using some of the practices that we give you and then come back it's designed to get you experimenting get you reflecting get you thinking um and then returning to the book so ideally it will be covered in sticky notes and highlighters and all of that sort of stuff that would be um the dream <laughs> for me it's a manual yeah it is it's a manual it's a manual on how to get things working that's 
that's so that's so great because most of the time we need to go in for a service, but here you can self-service, and <laughs> and 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 so what about the, um, so some of the uh, work that I did many years ago when I was um, putting myself through a lot of self-education uh, before NLP, I did the business school for entrepreneurs with uh, Robert Kiyosaki in Hawaii for sixteen days, and uh, one of his mentors was a guy called Buckminster Fuller. And mm. uh, um, a great, a great uh, thinker and inventor and genius. And he says, um, duality is plural. Uh, uh, unity is plural. Minimum one, minimum two. So um, you, you can't have unity without two. Unity is plural. Minimum two. So you can't have one without having something else other than the one. Like you can't have happiness without not happiness. You talked about it a bit earlier. Um, you can't have happiness without unhappiness or without another emotion. And and so it's not negating. You're not saying uh, – because you've got to honor that that is not what you're, um, what you're seeking. So if happiness is, is what you're doing. So then how do you – how do we all kind of you, – and you, you did talk about it, that you can't be happy all the time. This is not about being um, – well, you can. You just need a lot of drugs and you need to have a very – you know, willing, willing, <laughs> willing doctor, um, and then, but of course, then you're dysfunctional. In fact, you're not even you're not even able to really operate properly. So that that's not an option. So it's about being able to have everything that gets gets thrown at you out of left field, and that you're able to take on uh, those um, those situations. Some of them through the pandemic, they may have lost family members. Prior to that, there was fires. When people lost their homes, they lost loved ones. Mm. Uh, we're all losing uh, family members at various times in our lives. Uh, jobs don't work out the way that they won't work out. Friends um, um, deceive you or hurt you or do. Ha- um, maybe your footy team doesn't win. I don't know. Um, but how do you how do you then embrace um, those times when you're grieving? Those times when you it's you know when it's absolutely valid to feel terrible and then get be able to then still be feel like you're on your journey for having happiness because things in the last six or so years since you've committed to this must things must have come up where you've honestly had to to grieve and and feel sad and feel uh, um which they're the absolute true and appropriate motions of those moments uh, what what have you done to then get some clarity around that as well because i think we all need to have that as much as we need to have the, the the hacks to to have more joy and happiness in our lives. So I came across a really fascinating piece of research um, that speaks to this. And basically there is a concept called emo-diversity, which means that you're emotionally diverse. And what the research found is that the people who are the happiest in life are the people who experience happiness and sadness um, in equal amounts, right? And this comes back to the point. You're not going to be happy every minute of every day. So people who allow themselves to feel every feeling and aren't over-indexed on either side are the ones who lead the happiest lives. And I thought that was fascinating to me. And it made a lot of sense because I think, again, we're what we believe that the happiest people are the people that are happy and skipping down the street every day. It's not the real thing, right? So I think what that says to me immediately is that one of the most powerful things we can do is say, 
it's not that emotions, certain emotions are good and bad. We need to allow ourselves to feel every feeling that we are presented with. But putting, I the way that I manage the stuff that's not so great, and this is going to sound very regimented, but for me this works. And, again, you can try it as an experiment. It might work for you. It might not. When I have a horrible thing that happens or something that just spins me in a different direction or spirals me, I allow myself to feel the feeling, but I also say to myself, how long am I going to allow myself to sit in this for? So I try and put an end date on it. So if there's a death, for example, I'm like, I'm going to fully sit in this emotion. I journal a lot and I find journal externally extremely powerful in fully exploring emotions. I think that it allows that space for us to truly connect with the feeling and write what, what it's alerting us to. But I put an end date on it. So I'm like, I'm going to sit in it, but I'm only going to allow myself to do this until this time and then I'm going to work out how I start to move on. What sort of simple things can I do to start to reframe and step into what's next? And I want to tell you a beautiful story that I couldn't think would be, well, I can't think of one that would be better in the context of what you're talking about. So you mentioned at the start of this particular question all the bad things that people might have experienced in COVID life. So there's a woman I know and her name is Sandra. And she has had a, a very difficult time in COVID. So obviously here in Melbourne, we've been in lockdown pretty much from uh, March and we're now in October and we're still in lockdown. And Sandra, about a couple of months into lockdown, her, at the age of 70, her best friend of 55 years was found murdered. Um, Sandra, her best friend was a very successful greyhound trainer and Sandra immediately had to step in and rehome 50 greyhounds and take charge of the property and deal with the homicide squad and all of this horrible stuff whilst in lockdown, living alone in isolation, right? Crazy. And she did that and she down. And then roughly around four weeks ago, Sandra's other very close friend um, who had never had any issues of mental health at the age of 71 suicided in lockdown. And I, I wonder how many cases there are like this, you know, in terms of, because we don't see those stats at the moment. And it turns out Sandra's my mother. And Sandra rung me when her good friend Marg had just suicided. And it was eight o'clock at night. And she said to me, I just needed to talk to someone. And she said, I've come to realise in my life that sometimes you can't try and make sense out of things that don't make sense. And I thought that in itself was powerful, right? And she also said to me, I've also come to realise at the age of 70, that we cannot experience happiness unless we experience deep sadness. And I know that because of what I've been through. And whilst I'm extremely sad at the moment, I need to be here for my family and the things that really matter. They depend on me. And I'm going to allow myself to sit in these feelings, but I'm equally going to allow myself to come out the other side in a week or two's time. And I was with my mum for the last two weeks and She's unbelievable. She's like my hacking happiness mentor. Um, and it's this mindset that um, has helped her, you know, navigate. And she's, she's back to her old, you know, 
that's not long enough or she hasn't grieved long enough. But what she's become brilliant at is allowing herself to feel the emotions, allowing herself to grieve. But she's been able to go through these crazy circumstances and still come out the other side just a little better than what she was before. Mm, amazing, hey? Wow, that's inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure those that are listening appreciate um, that that um, you know, that it's very personal, but also that, that we can all, all tell now that ha hacking happiness runs in the family. Um, uh, <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. It certainly so, does. So given, given that you just shared a story, I'm going to share one too because um, I got a lot of insight out, out of this. A num number of years ago I was doing a work a workshop with a guy uh, called Michael Adamides, who was uh, he's obviously an Aussie Greek, but had, had trained as a Swami in India and was there for know, 14 years, 15 years, something like that. And he was telling us that when he was in India, um, they were running this weekend workshop or a three-day weekend workshop, Friday to Sunday. And, um, and what happened was his guru was going to be running the workshop for about 800 people, right? And it was the first morning... It was about an hour before everything was supposed to start and everyone's kind of arriving and the whole thing's getting together and all of a sudden news comes through that the guru's guru, the great guru, had died. And oh. when the news came through uh, that, the, um, that this happened, the guy who was going to be running the workshop, his guru, rushes to his room, slams the door. And everyone's going, oh, my God, this is terrible news. Everyone's arriving. What are we going to do? It's terrible. Oh, my God. Like this is, And everyone's kind of like really in a state of shock and very upset. And, and, and you know, of course, he's upset. Maybe we need to cancel. Fifteen minutes later, the guy walks out of the room completely clear. And what he shared with me at the time, he said, what this guru had been able to do was grieve without resistance. So whatever feelings he had to feel, mm. he felt them fully and complete without resistance. It gave me such a great insight. I realized what I had been doing in business and life it was like on this roller coaster. And if I was starting to kind of feel like I was on a downward, it could just be something small, like I didn't get what I wanted or maybe um, you know, a, a relationship broke up or I wanted to be with uh, some girl and she didn't want to be with me or maybe I didn't do a deal in business, whatever it was, small or big. It was like I had a handbrake going on. I can't get down to the bottom, you know, and I would maybe yes. I, would use, I would medicate myself with food or go out and play sport or do so something to stop myself feeling those feelings. And as soon as I heard what he had said and started to ponder that and started to explore that myself, I've been able to feel the feelings of grief in business and whatever it else, without, 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 I might not be able to do it in 15 minutes, but without, without a lot of resistance. So you go down. So what happens is for me is if, and I know people are listening, this is a podcast and it's not a video, but like you go down into the bottom of the roller coaster, but because you do it without resistance, whoosh, and you come back out up the other side. And then you're spending, actually, even though it's kind of, you're kind of traveling the same distance, but you're spending more time feeling happier, better, because you're, you've allowed yourself to grieve. And so I reckon your mum has, um, you know, mastered that in her own way. And, and I just really encourage anyone to, to hear those two stories and go, hey, yeah, I could, I get that. I could do, I could learn that. I could do a bit of that. And I think with one of the things that you're talking about, about, you said earlier about having a balance between like there needs to be equal unhappiness and happiness. Well, not, not so maybe, 
if you were to measure the if you were to measure the the tubes or the pots of of emotions and you go yeah it's pretty even doesn't mean that time is associated with that though doesn't mean no. that you, you can still feel the same emotions and the same intensity but it doesn't mean that you have to spend one day feeling um crap and then the next day feeling good or one week feeling crap right it can actually it can actually be fairly even but spread over a longer period of time it's really important and these these things about that you were saying and having having hacks to get in better access to a better way of thinking and better options available to you is definitely available and i i get what you're saying and I'm, and congrats on on putting this this book together and and collating your thinking and your, and your lessons and your, your all of the learnings that be with your clients and yourself and coming up with your book and we're coming to near the end of our time together penny penny lacasso hacking happiness how to intentionally adapt and shape the future you want before we kind of close out, um, is there anything that I never we got a, never got around to, or you wanted to kind of oh, you never talked about this, or we should have, you know, is there anything kind of intuitively come up that you want to kind of add that we can kind of in closing? Yeah, there's probably so I just want to connect on the point that you just said. So the one of the one of the surefire ways to not be happy is to suppress your feelings. And I think that that's what we have become extremely good at. And you've just alluded that you were good at it and then you learned not to be good at it and how that changed your life. So actually trying to not feel the bad stuff is detrimental to your happiness. So I think that you've just alluded to a beautiful point. And that is why filling every minute of every day to distract yourself from things that aren't working out is not healthy and it's not sustainable from a mental health perspective. Um, the other thing I would say is with the work that we do, one of the most powerful things you can do as a start point if you want to hack your happiness is to hold the mirror up to where you're at. Yeah, and we don't like to do this because often it can show us things that we don't want to see. And so one of the things that we've done is we've created a free online assessment, um, which is the Hacking Happy Assessment, which is all um, been developed in uh collaboration with um, an org site company and basically what we do is we take you through an assessment to help you hold the mirror up to where your mindset and behaviour is in regards to the skills that are foundational to hacking happiness. Um, and at the end of it, we provide a customised report where people can actually um, learn more, to, more about the concept but also get free hacks to actually start to help them intentionally adapt. So if that's of interest, mm. um, that's available at hackinghappiness.co. Sorry, just say it's at a ha hackinghappiness.co, is that it? Hackinghappy.co. Hackinghappy.co. Um, yeah, and it only takes about 10 minutes, but it's a beautiful place to start. And so many people say just doing that assessment is extremely helpful mm. in getting their mindset into the space of the sort of thing that we're talking about today. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I think I think we've all been truly inspired today. Um, I'm sure whoever's listening that the rest of your day is going to be different. Hopefully the rest of your week and month and year and maybe lifetime after after listening to this. So, Penny, congrats again. Keep doing So where are you up to? You said your goal was to, um, was it 10 million people that you were going to, by 2025, was that your intention? Yeah, so we've still got uh, a few years to go, which is great. Um, look, it's really hard to measure. 
So we've kind of tried to measure it through the amount of people that we've come into contact with and shared our concepts with. Um, but we're, we're probably around a couple of hundred thousand mark. But I always say, and this is the beauty of having a crazy mission like what I put out into the world, it doesn't matter whether we reach the 10 million. It really doesn't. Because if we can make the life of 10,000 people happier, the on-flow effects of that are significant because think of it's like when someone loses weight everyone wants to know what they're doing when you're happy and you're enjoying your life it inspires others to want to do the same correct yeah, yeah. that's right it's the um it's the i think i vaguely remember i think buckminster fuller talks about perturbation i think it's when it's when you have intention um it's what happens 90 degrees to that so it's like the the um the bee goes to to get the pollen, but then it germinates. The perp the perpendicular to that is that that then helps uh, propagate more flowers. So mm. the ripple effect is like you know dropping the the water into the uh, the stone into the water, and all the ripples come out. Yes, you'll yes. you'll never know. I agree with you. You'll you 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 got to have some sort of multiplying factor there of times ten and two hundred two million, or it's going to have some. It must have some sort of ripple effect. Uh, there's no doubt about it, which is the beauty of it all. All I know, Tony, is that the world could definitely use a bit more happiness at the moment, and if I can be part of making that a reality, then um, I can go to my grave a little bit uh, happy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, not rest in peace, but rest in happiness. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's so great. Well, congratulations on the book. It's out, out now. I was out last month in September, Hacking Happiness, Penny Lucaso, Lucaso, and you can get it on Booktopia and you can get it in your local bookstores, publishers John Wiley, and well done. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tony, and thank you for creating Booktopia. I'm a personal fan and I've been using it for years. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> Absolutely. Good on you, but thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au